Hi, my name is Kirk Kinder, and this is Saving Yourself from Wall Street, the podcast for people who want to avoid Wall Street's sales tactics, high cost, and conflicted advice so they can take control of their financial life. So let's get to it. In this week's episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast, I take you behind the scenes of my bi-monthly presentation to my financial planning clients. I base many of these presentations on client questions, and as you might expect, in the past few weeks I've received a plethora of questions on GameStop. It's been in the mainstream media, it's been talked about everywhere you go, and the big questions are, what really was happening with GameStop? And other stocks like that, like BlackBerry, was it really the system going against the ordinary investor to the benefit of hedge funds and Wall Street insiders? This is exactly what we're going to discuss in this episode. Now, with these episodes where I'm going behind the scenes of my presentations of financial planning clients, I use a lot of visuals. I've got some slides. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering about some of the visuals I'm talking about, you can always go to savingyourselffromwallstreet.com and watch the video, which will give you all the different presentation slides that I'm using. So let's dig in and find out what's really going on with GameStop. Good morning. Hope everybody's having a, a good Saturday so far. <clears throat> We're going to hit uh, a topic today that I've got quite a few questions about, and I'm sure you've seen it quite a bit in the news. So it's typically what's going on with GameStop and then some of the other stocks that have been really volatile lately. And uh, it's getting that whole situation's <clears throat> being portrayed incorrectly in, in the media. Uh, they're trying to make it look like a elite versus the common Joe, and they're going to crack down on the common Joe. But so I'm going to get into it a little bit and show you why it's that's not the case. And also just what's been going on. I mean, there's a lot of people wondering you know, what's happening here. Um, so let's just jump right into the screen share here and we'll we'll get right after it. Okay. So again, what we're going to do is we'll start off with a little bit of the fundamentals. Uh, some people don't really even understand what short selling is. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll get into then GameStop and what's going on there. <clears throat> and then we'll talk about the reason I say it's not necessarily the elites versus the common folks. Uh, and that's the clearing process for all of this. And, and then finally, I'm going to kind of bring it back to a view I see of the markets overall. And I think this is sort of endemic of what's happening in the markets, not just GameStop. So I, I just want to start off with Benjamin Graham's definition of investing. Now, some of you may have heard of Benjamin Graham before. He wrote uh, some books back in, I guess, the 1930s and was essentially the mentor for Warren Buffett. Pretty much everybody knows who Warren Buffett is. So Warren Buffett based a lot of his investing theories off of what Graham wrote. And I think every money manager in some way tries to emulate Benjamin Graham. 
So I always, whenever I'm making investments, this, this is what I'm thinking about. So an investment operation is one in which upon thorough analysis promises safety of principle and a satisfactory return. Operations not meeting these requirements are speculative. Okay, so that's, you know, that, that should drive everything with investing for people. I mean, sure, there's time to be, you know, speculators. You might have a hunch or something like that, but you don't want to do it with a lot of your money. And I think what we're seeing, and especially with what's going on in GameStop, this isn't anything close to what you would call an investment. It's pure speculation. Okay, so I just want to start with that. So, so what is short selling anyway? <clears throat> Essentially, it's a way to profit if you think the price of a stock is going to go down. So if you look at a company and you think this thing is way overvalued, it's not worth nearly what it is, there's actually a mechanic out there that you can make money if, if the price does decline. Uh, so that, that's essentially at the bottom you know, of everything, that's what short selling is. It's a way to profit as the price of the stock comes down. So, you know, what, what are the processes? Step one, find the stock that you think is overvalued. Okay, something that you think that is going to decline in the future. And then the next step is you open up a margin account with the broker. And what you're going to do is you're going to borrow the shares from somebody who already owns it. So you, um, you, you borrow from somebody who owns it and then you're going to sell it immediately and then you're going to buy it back later at a lower price, hopefully. That's essentially short selling. <clears throat> so you go through the steps, you wait for the stock to fall and then what you do as a short seller is once the price is down, and you think it's kind of fairly valued at that point, you buy the shares back and you give it to the person who you borrowed it from. So that's basically the process. Sounds easy, right? Hmm. But, you know, with anything, there's risks. There's always going to be risks. Uh, the first one is there's going to be borrowing costs. Okay, so, uh, and, and those costs go up if, you have a stock that is kind of hard to borrow. So stocks that don't have a lot of shares that are sold short, it's pretty easy to, to get those and not very costly. But with things like GameStop and BlackBerry, it gets to be more costly. Uh, the other thing is at any time, the brokerage can close your trade. You know, if something's getting a little scary with it, if the lenders want that stock back, anything like that, the brokerage can shut you down at any time. Uh, the other thing is <clears throat> when you sell short, you have to pay the lenders some interest. Um, you also have to pay them if the stock splits, if there's any spinoffs, bonuses, anything like that, you got to make them whole. On top of that, if dividends are paid while you're selling short, you have to make the, the dividend payment for them. And the other thing that there is a, a sort of a risk is when you do this maneuver, when you're short selling, you're actually going to have margin in your account, which means there's going to be margin interest being charged by the brokerages. 
Uh, and then the other big thing, and this is what's going on with GameStop and all the other stocks like that that's happening. You could be of a short squeeze. So what's a short squeeze? Well, it means you go short on the stock, but then the stock starts to move up rapidly. So at that point, you've got to sell your position to get out and get the, the money back to the original borrower. And, and what happens is if there's if the stock starts going up and then there's a lot of shorts out there and a lot of the shorts are covering, it's going to accelerate the price move up. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. So I just want to um, <clears throat> we'll keep going here. Why would you want to sell short? Well, th there's a few reasons. You know, the first one is it could be during a bear market. It's an opportunity to make money in a bear market when most of the stocks are going down. You can you could short several stocks. Uh, the other thing is it can be used as a hedge. So you might actually own a stock and you think it's, it's a little overvalued, but you don't want to sell it for capital gains reasons or, or some other reasons. You can actually sell part of your own share short so that if it does drop, your downside protection is there. And then finally, obviously, the, the main reason that people short stocks is they think they have found a stock, a company in particular that is overvalued and they want to make money as the price declines. Okay, uh, so I want to dig a little bit deeper into short selling. Uh, if, if you know everything about short selling, this is probably wasting your time, but a lot of people really don't understand the mechanics by it. So basically you have a few parties here. You've got the short seller, you've got the brokerage, <clears throat> you've got the person who's lending the stock, and then you've got the person who is essentially buying the stock from the short seller. So again, when you decide to do this, uh, the first thing you're going to do is you tell your broker, I want to sell short. So they're going to go and find somebody willing to lend that stock. So the brokerage is going to find an investor who will lend them the stock. So if you start at the bottom right there, the stock lender gives the stock to the broker. The broker then gives the stock to the short seller. And the short seller then goes out into the market and sells it to a buyer. And of course, the buyer gives them cash for that stock goes to the short seller, short seller then gives it to the brokerage, gives that cash. And then the key thing here, you see the words plus margin. This is a margin loan. Okay, there's going to be margin. You're, you're essentially investing beyond, um, well, you're not investing beyond what your cash proceeds are, but you have to go on margin. So if you were gonna do a short sale for $10,000 of a company stock, you're going to actually have a margin loan for another 50% of that. So you're essentially on the hook for 15,000 at the start. <clears throat> now, if the stock goes down right away, that margin means nothing. But if the stock continues to rise, the brokerage wants to make sure that they have some coverage there as you start to lose some money, because this is a lended stock. This isn't something you bought directly. If you buy a stock directly, if you go out and you buy Coca-Cola stock and you put 10,000 into that, your loss is limited to your $10,000. And ultimately it doesn't impact anybody else because you own the stock. There's no counterparty risk there. But when you sell short, you've got that $10,000 that you're on the hook for, but there's also other parties involved here. So they have to have some security, which is the margin. So that 50% that is the margin amount 
so as the stock loses value, the brokerage knows that they still have some coverage there to pay the lender in a worst case scenario. Now, the problem is if the stock really starts to move up and it's moving against you because you think the price is going to go down and that's how you're positioned. Once you get past that margin, once that 50% of the margin is gone. So again, you, you got 10,000 short, 5,000 margin. The stock moves to the point where you're now down. It, you know, the cost of it is 16,000. Now you're through your margin. Well, the brokerage didn't come back and say, you got what's called a margin call. They're going to say, you need to give us cash now or we're going to liquidate this position. So you've got to come up with cash. Now, the problem with going short is your losses are unlimited. With buying a stock, you, you have a limited loss. Going back to my example of buying $10,000 of Coke, once Coke gets a zero, you're out 10000 That's the most you're going to lose. But when you sell short, if that stock keeps going up, you can lose more and more and more. It's not limited to the original amount of the short sale that you did. So if you did $10,000 of a short sale, you can lose that pretty quickly and you've got the margin loans, plus you're going to get margin calls. So you can see when you sell short, it's a very risky maneuver. I have never sold a stock short before. You can, you can actually access shorting a stock or the market through uh, put options, which, which can protect your principal. And I've done that a little bit, but not a ton. But when you short sale, you really need to know what you're doing. Um, so anyway, jumping back to the example, the cash goes back to the broker plus the margin. And then that collateral, that money goes over to the stock lender. Okay. And then that margin loan is costing you money. They charge an interest rate on that, which is shared between the broker and that lender. Because you're probably wondering, why would a lender lend that money? Well, they still typically own the stock, uh, but they're going to get some. They're going to get some uh, interest from the margin. They also get a, a fee or a rebate fee. So they're making money. It's a way that if they have a large position, they can lend some out and get some interest on the stock. They still own the stock. They still think the stock's great. So why not get a little bit of interest off of it? So that's sort of the mechanics of short selling. Now, a lot of people think short selling is, is bad. You know, it sounds horrible when you're making money as the stock loses value. As people lose value, you're making money. It sounds kind of nefarious. Um, and you could go back to even if you ever saw the movie or read the book, The Big Short, these guys made money as the housing market crashed and they tried to you know, make demonize these guys because, well, people were losing their homes and you're making money off it. How horrible a person are you? Well, actually, it, it serves a purpose. Um, short selling actually helps the markets overall. It keeps the markets in check. And I use these examples of Enron, MCI, WorldCom and Tyco. They were all exposed because of short sellers. Short sellers did the work to dig in to see that these companies were a sham or in greatly overvalued. They shorted it, and eventually that led to those being exposed. So it probably actually saved more investors from adding, continuing to add money in there and driving the prices up higher. So in a way, it did help the market. But it does help clear the market of inefficient companies. Okay, so that's the that's the baseline. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what is investing. So that's the over overarching uh, 
thing I want to get across and then talk about short selling. So why does it matter for GameStop? What happened here? So, you know, every company has a certain amount of shares out there, a float. Uh, it could be a million shares. It could be 20 million shares, could be 50 million shares. Well, you know, when you look out there, you can see how many of those shares at any time are being shorted. So, for instance, Home Depot, Microsoft, they have a minuscule amount, well under 1% of their shares are being used for short positions. So that means of the 50 million shares for Home Depot, and I don't know how many shares exactly there are, but let's say it's 50 million. You know, you're talking less than 1% of those are being borrowed and shorted. So, you know, investors are looking at it and saying, yeah, I don't think that these companies are either overvalued or I'm not going against them because they are pretty good companies that, that have pretty good movements upside in the prices. Well, when GameStop, when this stuff all happened, GameStop was over 120% of the shares shorted. So if they had 10 million shares out there total, there's about a, you know 12 million shares that were being shorted. That's extremely unhealthy. So everything was being shorted somehow. Uh, so you created a bad situation there. You know, when there's only 1% of shares being shorted, you can, you can pretty much manage stuff. You're not going to have, for the most part, any kind of crazy situation happen because of the shorts. It's all manageable. But when you're talking more than 100% of the shares outstanding, you're, you're setting yourself up for a bad situation. And GameStop isn't new to this. You know, GameStop has kind of been a company that's on the outs for years. Really, uh, the, the percentage of shares that have been shorted in GameStop have been going up drastically since 2015, mostly because people don't go to stores anymore to buy their games. They just download them. So, you know, it's kind of a dying business model. So they have been struggling for a few years and they've been fighting off all these shorts for a while to keep uh, the company going uh, and the way they pretty much been doing that is any free cash flow they've had or any borrowing that they've taken on, they've been buying back their shares to keep the price up. So anyway, you can see from this that there, there's a volatile situation that could happen when you get to all of the shares being sold short. It doesn't take much. Well, then you get Robinhood, <clears throat> all these people that come in from Robinhood, and they they acknowledged this. They, they kind of saw... You know, there's there's a message board out there on Reddit called Wall Street Bets. And they noticed that, hey, uh, here's a stock that's got all of these shares that are being shorted. There's an opportunity here. And, and this is the same group that's been doing some really crazy stuff the past few uh, months. Uh, they're the ones that were, you know, buying into Hertz when Hertz was clearly a bankrupted company. Uh, Carnival Cruise Lines, all, all of these companies that have really been left for dead and probably should be dead, they start jumping in uh, with a lot of money to try to just drive the price up. Pure speculation. I mean, I don't think anybody in their right mind looked at Hertz and said, yeah, you know, this bankrupt company, I want to buy their stock. You have to be a fool. Uh, but tons of people jumped into it just to try to drive the price. Excuse me. Um, I think another thing that fuels this is the fact that Robinhood and, and even really all the brokerages now are down to no commission trades. 
there's no cost to do it. You just jump in. I mean, there's guys going, I, I remember reading something about how this guy's getting a ride from taxi driver who's sitting there on his phone, making trades from his phone, just goes to the Reddit, read something and goes on their phone and does it. So, you know, nobody likes to pay commissions, but sometimes even an eight or $10 commission fee might slow some of this stuff down. Um, so what, what was basically happening in this situation with GameStop is all of a sudden these, these Robin Hooders would come in and they'd start buying the stock and they would do it on margin. They would leverage their position. So again, they want to invest 10,000. Well, they can get another 5,000. 50% on margin. So they have $15,000 investment and they just pay interest on that $5,000 that they borrow from the brokerage. So you have leveraged buys coming in. And then what happens is if a lot of buyers come in and the price starts to go up because of that, well now with so many shares that are short, over 100% of the shares already shorted, the price is going up. Going back to our example, these guys are getting margin calls that they have to put in more money because the price is rising. It also forces them to sell shares, which pushes the price even higher and forces more of the short sellers to sell. So now you have a situation where the stock is just going way up. But but what it created is as these buys and sells, you know, once the Robin Hooders started making money, they'd start selling and the price would just start plummeting. So you had a completely irrational market. The price was just going crazy. So, so that was exactly what was happening. Now, a lot of people are, are looking at this today and sharing it on, okay, the regular guys getting at the hedge funds. And, and I'm all for that, right? I, I love it when the common person gets after the elites. Uh, but you have to kind of look at it, step, take a step back, don't pick parties. I'm on the common guy side. I'm on the, I'm on the establishment side. You got to look and see what's really going on. Um, so the first thing is it, what Robin Hooders are doing on Reddit is technically an illegal activity. If as a financial planner, if I got a bunch of financial planners to basically go on and start to identify a stock and try to manipulate its price, I'm probably going to prison. The SEC and, and Department of Justice are going to come at me. And I'm going to jail for, you know, price manipulation, um, insider trading, all of that kind of stuff. Well, that's exactly what's going on on Reddit. Um, it's these people coming in there. And, and the other thing is on these message boards, somebody did a study and, and said that they assumed about 80% of the people posting on Wall Street bets are just bots. They're not even real people. So it could be one original person and then they create a thousand more identities and then they all hype the same thing and it does manipulate the markets. If the hedge funds were doing this and, and they got caught manipulating prices, you know, there'd be cries for their heads. But what's been happening with this is they're like, hey, good for the common guy. And they see the government and the financial establishments coming in to kind of protect the hedge funds in this situation. Uh, and, they're, and, and the public is upset because it looks like another example of the establishment winning over the common guy. That's not necessarily the case, because if if the establishment was doing what Reddit and these Wall Street bets are doing, they would be in trouble, too. OK, so the other reason that this thing got so crazy. 
crazy. And the other reason that the brokerages stopped the trading in these stocks, and it looks like the establishment is stopping the common man from making money, is how the market functions. It made a very unstable situation for the markets. Now, anytime you place a trade, whether you do it through TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, Merrill Lynch, or any other brokerage, that trade goes through an independent third party, um, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corps. So what the DTCC does is just make sure that uh, you know the trades are being um, transacted effectively, efficiently, legally, and you know, and all parties are treated fairly. Okay, so anytime that you sell a position at Fidelity and there's a buyer at TD Ameritrade, it goes through the DTCC to process this. So typically what happens here is when you do a trade, and, and if you're a client of mine, you probably asked for money before, and I said, okay, it's going to take me a couple of days for the, the trade to clear and then the money will show up in your account and then I can send you the money. So you're looking at basically three days. Well, there's two day settlement for a trade. So if you, if you buy Coca-Cola stock today, well, Monday, uh, it's going to take two days for the, the trade to be completely settled with the cash and show up in your account. Okay. So, so those two days, um, <clears throat> essentially what happens is the brokerages. So in this case, Robinhood and TD were, were two of the big stocks with GameStop. Um, the brokerages put up the money to back those trades for those two days. Okay, so that's their money. It, it, it's not your money that's basically there as a stopgap stop measure. Okay, so the problem is in, an, in a normal market, if there's a two-day lag, the brokerages are fine. If it's Coca-Cola and it might bounce maybe a 30 to 80 cents per share. That's not a problem. But when a stock's going from, you know, $50 to $483 back down to $112 in a matter of a couple of days, well, between those two days, you have a massive swing in the price and, and the brokerages are on the hook for that. And then if, if that's not enough with these stocks in particular, GameStop, BlackBerry, AMC, well, what's been happening here is these investors are using margin. So that's also the brokerage's money. They're lending you that money to, to basically accelerate your trade. So rather than just buying 10,000 of GameStop, you're able to buy 15,000. Okay, so, so that they're also on the hook for that. So there, there's a lot of risk here for the brokerages. So basically the... Um, DTCC was getting afraid that they wouldn't have, the brokerages wouldn't have the proper money at settlement because of the wild swings in the prices. Uh, so what the first thing they did is they demanded instant settlement. So they demanded that the money be provided and, and cleared right upon the trade. Now, to give you kind of an example of that, when you have your credit card bill, you get your credit card bill and you have 30 days to make the payment. Well, what if all of a sudden you get that credit card bill and says it's due right now? Now, for hopefully for everybody watching this, it wouldn't be a problem. You've got some cash reserves, you pay the bill, 
it's a nuisance because you have to pay it now, but it's no biggie. But what if you're somebody who's kind of living on credit card debt, who's living paycheck to paycheck, and all of a sudden your your creditors say, I want the money right now. You got a problem. That's a big problem. And the thing is, uh, the DTCC is on the hook if these if these trades don't work out, if these brokerages don't have the money, either at the two-day settlement or the immediate settlement, DTCC is on the hook for it. So they have to come up with the money. And, and really what it does is the DTCC gets its payments from all the different brokerages out there. So it's, it, it's kind of like they all fund the DTCC. So if the, if the DTCC, if the clearing agency is on the hook for this money, they're going to take the money from what's been provided from all the other brokerages. And if it continues to happen that way, they're going to make all the other brokerages cough up more money. So you have a situation where a stock like this, like GameStop or some of these others, could technically actually put all the brokerages at risk for capital. So you could have a situation where every brokerage out there, even ones that aren't even doing GameStop or, or uh, BlackBerry or any of those other stocks, they're not allowing it to happen. They could still, they could still go under. So, uh, and in fact, Robinhood got the point they were about to go under because of all this. That's why they stopped GameStop uh, trading. They, they couldn't. They didn't have the capital to do it anymore. Uh, and it also forced them to go out. They drew, in a, a, I think, a billion dollars on a credit line, and then they had to go out and get more money out there to keep, to, to keep from going under. So this wasn't a the small guy versus the establishment so much. This is a situation where if it continued and it went to other areas, it, it could literally put the entire financial market into jeopardy. So just to keep the market from going nuts, something had to be done. And again, I'm not a guy, if you know me, I'm not somebody who's pro-establishment in any way, but you know the way it's structured right now, this thing could jeopardize the entire market. Um, so the, you know, the big thing from Robinhood, I, I say they steal from everyone in this case. What they've done and what's happening overall in the markets, we'll talk about more in a second, is we're gamifying investing. Going back to my Benjamin Graham quote, this is not investing what people are doing. This is pure speculation. And uh, I, could, I, I think with all these message boards that are filled with bots and, and, and these apps with no trading cost, I think this is going to continue. And it's going to probably get worse. It's going to continue to create very precarious market conditions. And when I look at what's happening right now, uh, the parallels to the year 2000 are really amazing. In fact, I think they're actually worse because of the in increase in technology and the lowering of cost since 2000. So I think, Again, I said at the beginning, this is sort of endemic of what's going on overall in the markets. So the market, I, you know, the market's been overvalued and you've seen me for a long time now, a couple of years talking about how overvalued the market is. But now we actually have a severely overvalued market coupled with a euphoria uh, in the markets. That's a dangerous, toxic recipe that we saw back in 2000. Now, I don't know when this ends or, or what, 
But right now, basically, everybody believes that the Federal Reserve and the government are going to make sure that nothing happens in the market to stop the train um, from rolling down the tracks. And that's that's pretty scary. Essentially, what everyone in the world is saying right now is this time is different. It's not like the other speculations that we've seen like this in the past. That's a pretty dangerous proposition, in my opinion, especially when you look at what I just showed you and see how even in one or two stocks, the leverage that's used in those could end up blowing up all kinds of entities that even aren't involved in it in, in any way. Um, so some other things that, that I look out look at to see that things are kind of getting a little nutty is right now we have a record low short interest in the market. So the S&P 500 right now has, you know, some of the lowest uh, short positions dating all the way back to, you guessed it, the year 2000. Okay. So nobody's betting against this market, even though I've shown you and everybody knows we probably have a pretty overvalued market. Nobody is willing to take that risk. Uh, just looking at basically the end of 2020 versus the peak of, of 2000, as far as valuation metrics, uh, you can kind of see that we are really, we're overvalued relative to 2000 in many aspects. So that huge bubble that you had way back then, it's even worse now by more than 50% on average. And I think the main reason for that is back in 2000, a lot of the excess was in tech stocks, you know, the internet stocks. In 2000, you could make the case that there were some sectors that were really well-valued, uh, sectors like consumer staples, you know, things like Procter & Gamble, Colgate, General Mills, Kellogg's, they were, Nobody wanted to invest in Kellogg's back when Pets.com was making double-digit returns every month. I mean, who, what kind of idiot would buy Kellogg's? Uh, so Kellogg's was actually pretty well-priced. Even back then, you had oil companies that were pretty well-priced. So the market, you know, the market back then was kind of bifurcated, where a few sectors were ridiculously overvalued, and some were pretty well-valued. Uh, today, I think. You look across the border, most almost every sector is overvalued by historical standards. You could argue, I think, oil, the you know, the energy sector is still pretty undervalued. Beyond that, there's really not anything that jumps out at me that's being <clears throat> undervalued. Uh, the other big thing, this chart just shows you essentially the, the formula is the enterprise value divided by sales ratio being greater than 20. Um, what it really means is all of the pricey stocks continue to see massive trading volume. So all of the money, most of the trading is going into companies that are really expensive, that are really overvalued, um, mostly the big tech stocks. So, you know, I've, I've been on here talking about the risk of big tech stocks and, you know, you look kind of stupid when the price keeps going up, but, you know, price Price appreciation or depreciation is only one part of the investing landscape. Risk is the other one. And when everybody thinks that risk isn't a factor anymore, it's usually when risk shows up and says, hey, remember me? Um, so this is another one that shows we're kind of in a, a situation. Uh, the other big thing that's going on are these um, 
SPACs. So this is now something that they've put in there, you know, before uh, essentially IPOs. So, you know, before to get in that IPO, before it, it goes publicly traded, it was almost impossible for individual investors to do it. It was always going to be institutional. So they came up with these SPACs, which democratize investing. So you as an individual investor can get into some IPOs before they actually go public. And you can just see money is flowing into them. And most of them, when you look at the, the results of these SPACs, so far, you know, people are losing their shirt with it, but yet the money continues to just fly in there. Uh, this is a basically an index that was created by Goldman Sachs. They call it the non-profitable technology index. So these are tech companies that aren't making profits. And you can kind of see from 2015 up until recently, I mean, the money that's flowing into unprofitable companies is enormous. It's <clears throat> driving this index up massively. Now, hey, that's great if you're in there. Um, you're loving it, right? But is it going to continue? And how long can that continue? For companies that aren't making money, they're losing money. And I guess some people figure, well, the Fed will continue to keep interest rates low. We're going to keep liquidity flowing. So these companies that are unprofitable will continue to get debt. So all they're doing is when they need more cash infusion, they go out and get more debt. And when you have an, a Federal Reserve that's so accommodative, that can continue. And it can. This could continue longer. But is this something that you think makes sense? When you look at this chart of unprofitable tech companies, does this make sense to you? Um, another one, just small investors buying calls. So a lot of what happened with GameStop and uh, BlackBerry and all those other companies, AMC, uh, rather than just investing and buying the stock, a lot of these small guys on Robinhood would buy calls. Calls are essentially leveraged plays. Um, maybe we'll get into how calls are used and why they can be leveraged, but Bottom line for a call, you can basically take about 10, let's again, go back to your $10,000 investment. You take about a thousand, somewhere in there, about 10%, you buy a call with that. Well, that call basically gives you $10,000. So that $1,000 you spend on the call gives you $10,000 exposure to the stock. So in a way, you know, you can use options as protection. You've only put up 10% of your in your investable assets, but you have 100% of the upside. So in a way, if you look at it, that's basically, that makes sense. But what happens is you could buy several calls. You can, you can take that call, that 10%, you buy $10,000 worth. You can buy another call. So you go back into your $10,000 kitty and buy another call for a thousand. Now you got twice, you got two times the exposure for the stock going up. And you can do it for three, you can do four, five, you could buy 10 calls with your $10,000. And then you'd have 10 times uh, exposure or $100,000 exposure to that stock. So if that stock goes up, you leverage your return by 10 times. But see, the thing about calls, they're options. So they have an expiration date. So the day they expire, if that, if the price hasn't gone up, 
your call expires worthless. So you lose that 10% per call. So if, if you took 10% and now you control $10,000 through the option, you still have $9,000 of actual cash. That call expires worthless. Well, you're out 10%. Not too bad. I mean, nobody likes to lose money, but that's not bad. But if you have taken that and leveraged it to the point where you bought 10 calls and they all expire worthless, you've just lost 100% of your investment. Um, so what we see here is a lot of these small investors right now are just buying calls like crazy. And again, it's pure speculation and they're, they're not using it as any kind of insurance where they're putting 10% in they still control 10% or hundred percent. They're not using it that way. They're leveraging, which is why GameStop and, and some of these other stocks had such a, such an issue. Uh, so that's never good. The other thing that's really kind of jumping out at me is, is penny stock volume trading. It's just gone through the roof. Um, just last December, over a trillion shares of penny stocks. What are penny stocks? Those are stocks that are traded over the counter. They are not traded on, you know, the NASDAQ, the Amex, uh, any formal New York Stock Exchange, any formal exchange. So if you think back to the Wolf of Wall Street, what those guys were doing is pushing penny stocks on people. Really highly illiquid market, very manipulated. Um, we see a lot of money going into penny stocks. So is that a healthy thing? Do you think these people are looking at these stocks and doing an investment analysis? Or do you think they're just speculating? Uh, you know, and then finally... Again, another valuation just kind of shows you that the S&P compared to what the earnings, the trailing earnings, so the earnings in the past, we're, we're hitting levels we haven't seen since the year 2000. Okay. Again, just a very overvalued market. Now, when you throw that along with the crazy speculation, it gets a little bad. And this is another stock. I've mentioned it several times in these presentations. And if you're a client, you know, I've, I've been talking about this for a long time. Tesla. Uh, it's funny that Elon Musk actually came out and started talking about GameStop. You wonder why would Elon Musk care? Well, the reason is there have been so many people shorting Tesla these past few years. And so Musk has been fighting these short sellers all the time. And he wants to help out GameStop, you know, fight off these short sellers too. So Tesla has been one of those that has killed people who try to go short with them. Um, because the money would flow in and then the short sale or short squeeze would happen and Tesla price would go up even more. But I just wanted to kind of put this in perspective. So the left column is, you know, the top nine car makers as far as the number of cars they sell. Okay. In 2020. So you can see, and then the little red line next to it is how many cars Tesla sold. So you can see 121 times the, the amount that Tesla sold. But yet you go to the next column over on the right and it shows you the market capitalization of the stock. So Tesla actually has a market capitalization that's $15 billion higher than all those other car companies put together. Tell me that that's just not outrageous. And I've got people telling me, you don't understand Tesla. Tesla is not a car company. It's, it, it's a, um, 
basically a technology company. No, it's not. No, it's not. The technology of Tesla is way better than the traditional cars, but is not a software company. It is, if you have a true technology company, you can scale quickly. When Microsoft sells another uh, you know, of their software, it doesn't cost them hardly anything to produce it, right? At this point, when you download uh, Microsoft Windows, the only thing that Microsoft has to do is essentially at this point, all the programming is done. They just need to have the bandwidth for you to download it. Uh, they need to have the back end so that they can process your credit card. I mean, really, there's very little cost compared to what you're doing. They could scale. They could sell 100,000 shares or 100,000 products just as easily as they could sell 20 million products. That's not the case with Tesla. Tesla can't scale that quickly. If all of a sudden... Uh, they had a million, two million, ten million more orders for cars. They can't do it like that. It's not something that can be done. They still have to. They've got to have all the commodities that go into that car. They've got to have the manufacturing capacity to do it. They still have the same issues that all of the other car companies have. They just have better technology once you own the car. They can do the uploads, all that stuff. Once you have the car, you know all of that. It, their technology is better, but it's still a car company. <clears throat> I'm jumping back to valuations. So the U.S. stock market is ridiculously overvalued. We've been talking about that. Uh, but the rest of the world, if you take the U.S. out of the picture, international stocks really aren't that – they're pretty well-priced. Uh, I expect that the next decade, you're probably going to get a substantially better return from international stocks than you're going to get from U.S. stocks. So while I sit and bang the drum on how overvalued the market is, I'm basically talking about the U.S. It doesn't really hold for the rest of the world. So there's still investing opportunities out there that offer an investor a compelling valuation. So going back again, Benjamin Graham, are, is there a margin of safety? Yeah, there is a margin of safety here in international stocks relative to the U.S. And um, you could actually invest and you're not speculating. <clears throat> okay. All right, so I've been rambling on here for, for a while. Um, hopefully some of this stuff made some sense, but what we'll do is jump into some of the questions. And I probably should have been taking questions all along because uh, I'm sure at certain slides, questions popped up. Okay, good question here. Explain how you can short more than 100% of the shares. Um, it gets back into doing margin. So, you know, when I said that there's more than 100% share, of the shares being borrowed, uh, we get the leverage. That's all it is. Um, it, it goes back to being able to go on to margin and you can get up to, you could get up to 50%. Right now, the margin requirements are 50% of the original investment. So, you can actually end up doing that uh, based on um, based on margin. So yeah, that, that's why it got so crazy. Uh -huh. Insider trading is okay when you're the, the speaker. Yeah, if you're a politician, the rules don't apply to you. Which gets back to why so many people were happy to see these hedge funds lose money 
relative to the individual investor because we're so used to seeing it the other way. You know, they get bailouts. They, you know, they have the advantages. They've set things up. I mean, there are things going on, um, the high, um, high frequency trading where basically uh, some of these organizations get like a millionth of a second advance notice of what the trades are coming in and they just front run it to make money. There's so many ways that they make money. The establishment makes money off of us. That's just unfair. I know I understand why people are like, yeah, give it, you know, give it to the big guy. Um, but, uh, but this, this situation, I, I, I look at it, I say, look, this could bring down the whole system. So the, uh, it can't continue, but will it? I, I don't think it will. I, I've never believed in the theory that this time is different. Anytime people have said that, it's ended badly. You know, back in 2000 when they said, well, the Internet stocks, it's a new paradigm. The old investing rules don't apply. It, it didn't last, right? At some point, something came in. Now, the, the, what most people will argue same with housing. Remember housing then after in, in 2002 to 2007, you know, oh, oh, it's a different housing market now. Like, like for some reason, the old principles didn't apply anymore. Um, I lived in Florida at the time and I kept hearing, well, you know, Florida is a hotspot. Everybody wants to come to Florida. Yeah, that didn't work. Once, once the prices got so far away from medium, medium incomes, the point where people can't afford it, all you're doing is you're waiting for what's that shock going to be? What is the, the pin that's going to pop that bubble? So in 2000, essentially what it was is interest rates went up. The Fed actually raised interest rates just a little bit, but it was enough to finally expose all of this. Uh, the debt cost to the companies that were unprofitable got to be too much. And then all the people that were lending them this money finally said, we're not lending you any more money. Uh, for housing, it basically got to be that the price of the homes got so far away from the medium income that it that it just stopped. Um, so there, there's got to be some sort of shock. Now, the shock could be that the markets go nuts because of the actions, right? If all if every brokerage got to the point where they're about to go under because of what Robin Hooders were doing with GameStop, that could be that could be a spark that could send the markets into chaos. And even then, I don't think the Fed has the liquidity to get that thing going again. Um, I, everybody's saying it won't happen because the Fed's not going to raise rates. And I don't think the Fed will. But the Fed has already, I think, fired off all their bullets. What else are they going to do? They're, they're zero-bound interest rates. Um, and, and what they found, countries that have gone to negative interest rates have not – doesn't provide any more juice. So if just the natural – market, if the natural economy slows, you, you could see that happen. Um, what are your thoughts? It's a good question. What are your thoughts on BlackBerry? They seem to have a real product uh, and maybe got caught up in hype. And, and I would agree with that. Uh, I actually think that BlackBerry probably is going to do pretty well. And not because of the BlackBerry phones. That's all all dead. It's they now have a really secure operating system software that is now being utilized in self-driving cars. Because one of the problems with, with some of the self-driving cars, if you followed that at all, you, you found that some of them have been hacked. Uh, so you're, you're in a car that's self-driving. And if that software gets hacked, 
they can do whatever they want. They can drive you off a bridge. Uh, so uh, BlackBerry actually has probably the best software, very difficult to hack, and it's being used so far in self-driving cars. So I think there's actually an investment case for BlackBerry. But yeah, they just kind of got caught up in the fact that they were beaten down and a lot of people were short selling BlackBerry. Um, because of self-driving cars are still a ways away. And that's the main use for their software so far. Uh, a lot of people think that it's overvalued. So that's how they got caught up in this. Uh, so are you still mostly staying out of stocks for now? No, 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 we've, we've got, I've got stocks. Um, what I've been doing though is uh, I've been investing in, in more value stocks. So I'm staying away from the high growth stuff, the stuff that's really kind of getting nosebleed level. So I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, I've got a lot bigger positions in energy, which I think is still a sector that's really well-priced or even cheap. Um, also just using traditional value <clears throat> metrics. So buying companies that don't have as high a valuation. Uh, we're also doing a lot of instruments that are kind of inflation protected, uh, just because I think that with as much money that's sloshing around and what's happening, it's starting to manifest itself into the price of goods and services. And as inflation goes up, we want to hold instruments that are going to do okay when instrument, when inflation's flying high. Uh, value stocks are typically a good one on that. Commodities obviously are, and you know, energy sector stuff is good. Um, precious metals is always good. So that's kind of what I, what I'm looking at. And I also always use that metric, the 200 day moving average, so that if the stocks start to move against us um, substantially, we're not going to ride this thing all the way down. So that's typically what I'll try to do. Um, so hopefully this made sense. You know, I, I try to kind of explain it as best I could and just show you why there, there is actually a threat to markets overall by what was going on. It wasn't the media is portraying this thing as the establishment's coming in to stop the small guy from trading and that, but it really wasn't that. These individual brokerages like Robinhood, Robinhood was on the brink of insolvency. Uh, TD Ameritrade wasn't on the brink of insolvency or anything, but they just shut it down because they could see what was coming. Um, but the thing is, if it got bad enough through the clearing mechanism, it could hit all the brokerages. So. Uh, that, that's why they did this. And, you know, I, I think, again, what we're seeing now is just a massive number of people coming into the market <clears throat> and they're just speculating. They're trying to make a quick buck. And, and that is, you know, it can work out for some people if you're smart enough to if you're smart enough to leave the party before the cops come, you might be OK. But it's the ones who don't that get in trouble. And typically that's going to be the vast majority of people. Um, oh, another question. What's the relationship between Robinhood, Citadel, and Melvin Cap? Uh, well, Citadel and Melvin Cap are hedge funds. So they were two funds that were really short GameStop stock. So they got caught in these massive short squeezes. They lost a lot of money. Both of those hedge funds had to go out and find more investment. So in order to stay afloat, uh, Robinhood is a brokerage. So they're, they're really not the same thing. Citadel, Melvin Cap are more like just investment companies. Robinhood's a brokerage. So Robinhood's kind of enabling this uh, through their platform. 
Um, but Melvin and Citadel were actually money managers that got caught up. And, and look, I'm glad they got hit. That that uh, Part of me is glad that these hedge fund guys are getting hit a little bit. But um, isn't Citadel a big investment, Robin? Yeah, yeah. Citadel um, put money into Robinhood. They own part of the, you know, just like you could own, um, you could buy, could have bought Merrill Lynch stock, which is now Bank of America. You could buy a lot of Bank of America stock and you could say, yeah, I'm an owner in Merrill Lynch. Um, Citadel made investments into Robinhood. So yeah, the irony of that is they were also very short in uh, GameStop. And so Robinhood's actions actually hurt them on that end. But yeah, they are an investor there. But outside that, uh, Citadel, Melvin Capper, investment firms, hedge funds, and Robinhood's a brokerage. Okay, so with that, if you have any further questions, uh, please reach out to me. And also, if you have other questions on what's going on in the markets, uh, please let me know because I like to make these presentations based on what your questions are. Because if I get three or four questions from clients that are the same, I know that probably the vast majority of folks have the same questions. And I, I, you know, I wanna make sure I'm getting good information that you find useful and timely. So have a great weekend. Uh, I'm predicting the Bucks are gonna win. Tom Brady has made a deal with the devil and I think or something. I mean, the guy just, it's amazing. Uh, so we'll see how the game goes. But have a great weekend, everybody. Well, that's it for this episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. I appreciate you stopping in. As always, you can find our podcast along with other articles and videos at savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. And now, the lawyers say hi. Saving Yourself from Wall Street is hosted by Kurt Kinder. Kirk Kinder is the owner of Picket Fence Financial, a fee-only financial planning firm. Picket Fence Financial is regulated by the states of Maryland and Florida in accordance and in compliance with securities laws and regulations. Picket Fence Financial does not render or offer to render personalized financial or tax advice through the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.